guys have been around for the last few weeks, you know that we've been doing this series that has actually been going through a text out of uh, what we call the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. And we've been using it to talk about our DNA, what's, what's important to us, the hills that we'll, we'll die on. And then uh, last week, if you guys remember, anybody here for Baptism Sunday last week? That was so cool, right? Uh, so we baptized some people, and, um, and we used that time as we, as we talked about baptism to set up the idea that we believe at E3 that, that God and Jesus commanded the church to do two things uh, as much as we could, and that we call them sacraments. And for us, a sacrament is another word for, for a mystery. But uh, I suggested also in talking about baptism and explaining it that a sacrament is, is a ritual. And, and sometimes ritual gets beat around a lot in, in areas of faith. Or we think about a ritual as just like an empty, meaningless, go-through-the-motions type of situation. But I think that rituals can be very, very powerful. Rituals only become empty when you forget the meaning behind them. And so baptism is this beautiful ritual that is meant to remind us of this amazing, deep reality of God's love for us. And it's also meant to be mysterious in, in, in the fact that this ritual, we, we actually believe God is moving in it as well. It's not just a symbol. It's actually something that God uses. And what's really cool is that we didn't really necessarily plan this, but Baptism is one of the sacraments given to the church. The other is communion. And so last week, we, we celebrated baptism. Today, we're going to experience communion together, the second sacrament, the second mystery, and therefore, another ritual of the church. And so in the same way that I unpacked and a little bit taught a little bit about how you can understand baptism and the importance of it, I'm going to do the same thing with communion today. And I want to start off by showing you... Um, a pair of my running shoes, okay? Uh, a few years ago, some of you guys might know, I started running. And uh, I don't run so much that I have to get multiple pairs of shoes in a, in a year. I get maybe one every uh, new pair every 14 months. And these are the second pair of shoes that I bought. They're my favorites. Um, I, I use them now just to do yard work. But uh, here's what I want to talk about. How many runners, any runners in, in the, okay, so a few. Um, Anybody ever like kind of get to the evening before a run and you just know you don't want to do the run in the morning? Like maybe you've just like, you've gone to, you know, you've gone to Gain Street Pies, you've eaten a bunch of pizza or something. And you're just like, dude, this run is going to be, I don't want to get up. Well, I mean, I did that all the time because running is a labor for me, right? Um, but I, you know, read about just advice of how to do this. And what a lot of people tell you, they say, listen, this is what you do. If you don't want to run, here's what they just get your shoes out and your shorts out and just have them ready so that when you wake up in the morning, everything's right there. And so uh, then what they suggest you do is like, if you don't want to run, because let's face it, a lot of us wake up in the morning, we want to run even less than we did the night before. And they say, look, don't think about run, just put shoes on, put shorts on. And then what most people find is that by the time you get your shoes on, by the time you get your shorts on, you're kind of like, well, I might as well do this thing. And that is a way that you can understand a ritual that unlocks something, a behavior that you should do to follow the ritual, okay? The ritual is just, look, I put my shoes on. Put my shoes on. 
put my shorts on, and then, oh, now that has like switched on something in my brain, and now it is easier to go actually do the run. Anybody understand? Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. So what I want to talk about today is the idea that communion as a ritual is not just meant to be understood as a ritual in and of itself. It's actually meant to unlock something in our hearts and minds that follows communion. So that the Lord's table, the gift, the Eucharist is not just about what we experience here, but it's actually meant to kind of set up a what's next situation. And I want to do that by exploring what, um, essentially what Marlene read for us, what the meal was that Jesus celebrated with his disciples and kind of how we can understand it and what it might mean. So if you, if you guys remember in Luke 22, she read, Jesus celebrates this Passover meal with his disciples and he uh, reinterprets the Passover meal. But Jesus was Jewish, his disciples were Jewish and Passover is like one of the most central, if not the most central identifying celebrations, ritual that they have. What it comes from is actually uh, the story of God's people in the book of Exodus. I had a seminary prof said that said once, listen, if you don't have Passover, you don't have Christianity because you don't have a Jewish people. Because the Jewish people, the story is, were enslaved in Egypt by Pharaoh, by the, the strongest, most powerful military empire in the region of its time. And they're the people, if you remember, if you know the story, that God is gonna use to restore all of creation. And yet, like they're stuck building things for Pharaoh. They are slaves. They have no power. Then God sends this guy named Moses. Let my people go. Remember that phrase, you know? Um, goes to Yul Brenner, and Yul Brenner's like, I would not let your people go. Hey, um, so, so God starts telling Moses, like, look, you got, we're gonna turn the heat up on Pharaoh. And every time they turn the heat up on Pharaoh through signs, Pharaoh just digs in. He digs in his heels even harder. He's just more stubborn, more dug in, until finally God's like, I have got to, I have got to um, release my people. And Pharaoh is not relenting. Sometimes he says, yeah, you can go. And then he changes his mind. And, and, and finally, God's like, I'm going to unleash a devastating plague. And it's really awful. Pharaoh has dug in his heels so deeply and he will not move. He will not let uh, God's people go. And so um, we're told in the scriptures that an angel of the Lord passes through Egypt and every firstborn in Egypt dies. And God tells his people, listen, um, the angel of the Lord is going to pass through Egypt. And this is going to be a Passover. That's where the term comes from, Passover. And so God says, listen, on this night, you need to do some things. And one of the things he tells his, his people to do is to celebrate a meal together, a ritual meal. Not just like, you know, Five guys or, or something like that. He's like, we're going to have a meal and it's going to tell a story and it's going to be a ritual. And, uh, and so they embody that. And then Jesus picks this up in his ministry. And essentially when we get to Luke 22, he's saying, listen, there's a new exodus. There's a new movement of God's uh, power and, and spirit. Now, 
I want to kind of focus on this one verse in the Exodus story of Passover, because it's, I've always just thought it's the best verse ever, uh, especially in relating to communion and Passover. So God gives all these instructions about the meal. And then in verse 11 of Exodus 12, he says, listen, this is how you should eat the meal. He says, you should be dressed, which is always a good idea to do at dinner, with sandals on your feet and your walking stick in hand. You should eat the meal in a hurry. It's the Passover of the Lord. Now, this is why uh, this is significant to me. Remember who God's people are, right? They're, they're slaves. They're slaves. And one of the ways that you can understand slavery is that you do not have control of your schedule. You don't have control of your schedule. You don't have control of how long your meal is. You don't even have control of whether you get a meal. So with that in mind, if you're going to be set free, which is the context, God's like, I'm going to set you free. You're not going to be slaves anymore. So have this meal. Well, listen, if I'm a slave and all of a sudden I own my schedule, you know what a meal is going to look like for me? It's going to be like sitting down for a long time because I don't get that freedom. Does that make sense? Like I'd be like, Let's dig into this thing, man. Let's take our time. Because nobody's going to show up and say, get up, get back to work. I'm free. Now, I eat very, very fast. Very fast. Like, my wife's always like, you know, it took me 20 minutes to make the meal, and you ate it in five. And, uh, and, but one time, uh, one time we, uh, for our 20th wedding anniversary, we took our family to Paris and to London, and we were going to have a, Par a, a Parisian meal, a French meal, courses and everything. We did what we could afford. But I had to like totally pace myself because I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm going to, you know, but I knew I was in for like an hour and a half for the long haul. So I'm like, I better just take it easy. So if you're a slave again, like, I think it's only natural to be like, I'm just going to sit down and enjoy this. For once in my life, no one's going to be tapping me on the shoulder and say, get back to work. But God's like, no, 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 no. Um, shoes on, dressed, walking stick, eat it in a hurry. Eat it in a hurry. That's really counterintuitive to me. Now, I want to pause here and want to remind you guys uh, about this text that we've been looking at uh, in Acts. And the story is in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus has given some final instructions to his disciples. He's being taken bodily up from the earth. And there's this great crazy scene where it says like uh, his followers are sitting there and they're staring up into space. I guess Jesus is like floating up. And these angels show up and they're like, hey, men of Galilee, why are you standing there? Why are you standing there? And Jesus has given his disciples some instructions, but they're stuck just kind of, wow, that's so awesome. And God kind of comes around, is like nudges them and go, uh, you're not meant to be standing here. These two things to me connect because I think sometimes uh, we kind of skip over the fact that God's like, look, when you may eat this meal, eat it in a hurry. And what I want to do is just explore why he would say that, 
And relatedly, what does this set up that comes next? We talked about rituals kind of set up, they unlock something in your brain, in your mind that says, okay, I've done this thing, now it's supposed to lead to something else. Well, what are those things? Well, the first thing I would tell you is this. This meal, the Passover meal, should remind you, the ritual should remind you that we are saved for mission. We are saved for purpose. So one of the reasons God says, eat it in a hurry, it's because he's told his people, you're going to be the, the, the light of the world. You are the rescue project. You're the means that this is all gonna take place. If you don't eat it in a hurry and get moving, you're gonna be sitting around while you have a mission to fulfill. So when we come to the table today, we should come with the, with the idea that it's not just this moment, this time, this Sunday. It is when I walk out of here, I should be on mission and purpose. You know, we're told this beautiful metaphor. Uh, well, God says, um, and Jesus says, you're going to be the light of the world. Anybody ever heard this? The light of the world, you know? And we understand that the world can be a dark, dark place. But what if the light never gets about its purpose? What if the light just kind of sits around and God has to say, hey, uh, people of E3, why are you standing there? You're the light of the world. You need to go out and show the light to other people. If the light just sits and never moves, then the world loses. So we're saved for a mission. We're saved for a purpose. There are no bystanders. There's no um, you know, sort of stadium seats in the kingdom of God. We all have a role. We all have a role. So here's what I would ask you like right now. Do you know, do you know what your role is in the kingdom of God? Do you know what your role is even here at E3? We're told in the scriptures that God gives his people things called spiritual gifts. Anybody ever heard the term spiritual gifts, right? Um, if you don't know what yours are, if you've never heard that term, imagine if you have anything in your life where you start doing it and before you know it, like two hours have gone by and you're like, man, I didn't even know time passed. Anybody have that in, in, in your life? Yeah. Where you just get so in the flow of things. That's one way to tell what a spiritual gift might be. The second way is to say, have you ever done anything or taken in an activity and all of a sudden the people who are around you when it happens, they're just blessed. Their, their spirits are lifted a little bit. Insight is gained, right? Anybody ever do something like that? Maybe you teach your growth group. Maybe you sit down with friends who are hurting and when you're done, they feel better. Those are two indications of spiritual gifts. Do you know what yours are? Because you should, because if you've never experienced that flow, if you've never experienced being able to bless somebody like that, oh, sorry, you're missing out. You could go out of here today and just Google spiritual gifts test. Online, they'll tell you what they are. But there are no bystanders in the kingdom of God. We all contribute. And this meal should say, look, communion, okay, unlock something. Now the next thing. I'm saved for mission. The second thing is the meal reminds us that we need to grow. The meal reminds us that God doesn't fix us all the time overnight. Am I preaching yet? 
I mean, sometimes we get fixed. You know, we ask God to, 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 to come into our lives. We, we sign on to, to have Jesus be our Lord and Savior. Some of us have, have experienced profound renovations of character. Others, look, we are a long-term project. And that's okay. You see, after this meal, God tells his people, I'm gonna take you to a land that's going to be the, the sort of the base of operations for to be, to be the light of the world. But you know what happens before they get to the land? They wander in the desert for how long? Anybody know? 40 years. And not just because God was mad at them, because they had some learning to do. In the desert is where they gave, uh, God gave them literally the, what he calls the instruction, the Torah, which is like the basics of how to live with God and how to live with each other. I, re I read this, uh, this great Jewish saying, it took God four days to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. It took him 40 years to bring Egypt out of the Israelites. You see, this meal should remind us that some of us have had struggles that have gone on for a long time. And we wish that we could just be fixed overnight. But we have some growing to do, and that's okay. You know what's not okay? Opting out of the growth project. And so the question is simply this. Uh, in, 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 the, in the language that we've been using, why are you standing there? I would ask you this. Is there any area of your life where instead of going out and growing, you're just standing there. Because you know what? The desert's not comfortable. It's hot. It's dusty. There's sand everywhere. But the desert is the place of change and growth. And so some of us, we kind of sign on to the God project and then we start taking that step out into the desert and we're like, oh man, it is dusty and sandy. And I go, oh man, I'm going to come back in here and just hang out. And God's like, uh, this is not what I intended for you. But we're like, man, but the desert, growth is uncomfortable, God. Growth means dealing with uncomfortable circumstances and, uh, you know, and it's just not where I want to be. And God's like, that's where you grow. That's where you grow. You're not going to grow in Egypt. You're going to grow in the uncomfortable places. So is there any area of your life where you've just said, you know what? I'd rather stay comfortable. God is calling you out to the desert. This meal should unlock. Oh yes, the desert is an okay place to be. Discomfort is an okay, okay place to be if I'm learning more about myself and God. The last, uh, the last uh, kind of uh, point on this there's this amazing scripture. Uh, I just love it. Uh, it's in the, what we call the book of Hebrews, which is written literally to the Jewish people. And the author uh, in Hebrews 12 writes this really poignant description. Um, it starts this way in, in verse seven. Bear hardship for the sake of discipline. God is treating you like sons and daughters. What child isn't disciplined by his or her father. But if you don't experience discipline, which happens to all children, then you are illegitimate and not real sons and daughters. So just pausing right there. Like it's this brilliant metaphor. If you're a parent, 
Do you or do you not take somewhat seriously the idea of providing some structure for your children, of teaching them right and wrong, good and bad? Thank you. (laughs) Woo! If you're a parent, by, by, if you're a good parent, how you know you're a parent is like, look, I'm training my children. And then, he, and then he, uh, the, the little passage goes on, skips down a couple. This is I love. No discipline is fun while it lasts, but it seems painful at the time. Amen there. Later, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Now, I want to go back and I want to reread that scripture because the word discipline there, uh, there is the, the connotation and, and the definition of it being like, listen, you know, it's discipline time. It's time out time, however you discipline your children. The other way to understand that Greek word is, is literally the word training. So listen to it again. Bear hardship for the sake of training. God is treating you like sons and daughters. What child is not trained by his or her father? But if you don't experience training, which happens to all children, then you are illegitimate and not real sons and daughters going on. No training is fun while it lasts. If you're a runner or whatever, you say amen. But it seems painful at the time, but it yields the peaceful fruit. Growth is actually a symbol of how much God loves us because he's inviting us to a deeper level of being, a deeper level of reality to reflect his character in the world. Last thing, and really this is uh, the, the crux of the matter, is the meal reminds us and it should unlock something in our hearts and in our bodies and in our minds that listen, we're free. We're free. Not because of anything we've done, The Exodus story is literally people who could not free themselves, slaves, and God intervenes and acts amazingly and powerfully to remove the bondage that they're in. And now a lot of us, we go, okay, that's cool, but I'm not wearing chains, I'm I'm not a slave. But I want us to pause here because it's really easy to go, yeah, I, I can't identify with that. You know, I'm not building pyramids. You know, Yul Brenner's not around in my life, like yelling at me. But I've done this before, but I want to just linger on the idea of what, what slavery really looks like. So I'm just going to offer a couple diagnostic questions, right? And the first question is this, like, what restricts your freedom? What restricts your freedom? And what do I mean by that? Is like I said, a slave, the very basic elemental nature of it is like you don't own your time. And when you would rather be sleeping, there's something driving you or somebody driving you to work, to do things. When you would rather be eating, when you'd rather be engaging with your family, something always has the right to go, no, you come with me, we're doing this now. And friends, there are things in people's lives that do that. They may not be a person. It may not be a human being. 
But there are drives and habits and things that we have cultivated in our lives. Anybody? That when you wish you were in bed, you're being driven to something or some place or somebody and you don't feel like you can help it. There are things in our lives that we were like, I really, really wish I was connecting with my friends and my family and yet something is pushing me to here, to them, to her, to him, to it. That is slavery. That is you don't have the freedom to say no. So what's restricting, what's restricting your freedom? What is it? Another way to think about this, uh, put a little twist on it just in case uh, we can come at it from a different angle. One of the ways that I understand Jesus, one of the ways that I believe he's worth following is that I think Jesus could do the right thing at the right time with the right motive. He did the right thing at the right time with the right motive. Slavery prevents me from doing that. Slavery no matter what it is, it could be big things, it could be little things, slavery impinges on my ability to do the right thing at the right time with the right motive. So like, let's, all right, let me break it down. I can do the dishes. I can even do the dishes when I'm asked. But anybody ever do the dishes and be like, oh, shoot. <laughs> right thing, right time. Right motive. What keeps you from doing that? Because listen, that may seem like ha, ha, ha until you realize, oh, I do that all the time. I have a problem with anger. I'm enslaved to anger. I'm enslaved to pride because I only want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. What keeps you from doing the right thing at the right time with the right attitude? Like slavery doesn't have to be the, always the big things. It could be just the thing of just like, man, I am a, such a slave to this Netflix thing. <laughs> this table should remind you and should trigger something in you that that is not the reality that you need to live in. Those bonds were broken, were snapped, were shed because of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. But you know the only thing that keeps a slave a slave in this situation is when the Passover happens and the slave just sits down. Because you know what's going to happen? The Egyptians are going to show back up and they're going to be, oh, that, they never left. Even though they were set free, they're still sitting here. The chains were broken. But if you never, like, just get up and walk out of Egypt, it may be like you never left. This table says decisively, that's not the reality you live in. There's a beautiful, uh, I'm gonna, I want to just read this passage of scripture. I don't usually do this and just kind of let scripture speak for itself, but this is, I, I just can't get better than this. A guy named Paul, uh, early church leader, he picked up on this Exodus language. He picked up on this slave and free language and he writes this to this church. Uh, in Romans chapter six, he says, listen, thank God 
that although you used to be slaves of sin, you gave wholehearted obedience to the teaching that was handed down to you, which provides a pattern. And he's just referring there, listen, uh, he's referring to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And he says, now, now that you've been set free from sin, and I love it, it's like, now that you might be set free from sin, now that it might happen, it's no, no, no. It already happened. Now that you have been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. And then he does a typical Paul thing. Oh, I'm speaking with ordinary metaphors because of your limitations. Thank you for insulting us, Paul. (laughs) Once you offered the parts of your body to be used as slaves to impurity and to lawless behavior, that leads to still more lawless behavior. Anybody ever been there in your life? Now, he says, you should present the parts of your body as slaves to righteousness, which makes your lives holy. When you were slaves of sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What consequences did you get from doing the things that you are now ashamed of? The outcomes of those things is what? Now listen, in Paul's world, in the Jewish world, death is not something that just happens when you assume room temperature. You can start experiencing death while you're still alive. Anybody know anybody who's been there? Death doesn't just wait when your heart stops beating. Death can start now. And Paul's saying, listen, there's things out there and behaviors that if you do them, they are just going to cause death in your life. And then he says, but now that you've been set free, again, not possibly, you were set free from sin. Now you're slaves to God. You have the consequence of a holy life and the outcome is what? Again, Paul's Jewish. In the same way that death doesn't have to wait until you die, eternal life doesn't have to wait until you die. In in the Jewish world, eternal life can happen whenever you start experiencing the life that you're going to have with God forever now. Eternal life starts now, eternal death starts now. And Paul's just saying, listen, you were set free. You don't have to be a slave to those things that cause death in your life. Now you can be a slave to the things that will bring eternal life. And then man, you've heard this, if you ever heard a street preacher, but they just get it wrong, I think. He says the wages that sin pays are death. But I remember one time, you know, I mean, I'm not all that smart. But I caught this this phrase that was so, it was right there. Because if I wrote this, it would say, the wages that sin pays are death, but the wages that God pays. But it doesn't say it, does it? The wages of sin are death. You, You earn that. You work for that, and it happens. Paul says, uh uh. But the gift of God is eternal life. You were set free. The chains were broken. You know what you have to do? Accept it. Accept it. God, you did that. Those chains aren't there anymore. I don't have to live in that reality. And you can be free and start experiencing eternal life now. So this table today, it should remind us of the reality of Jesus' sacrifice. But as a ritual, I want it to also prime our minds to say, 
It's not just about right now, but it's about walking out of here on mission. It's about, it's about staying in the things that are causing me growth, but are uncomfortable. And it is about, listen, I need to embrace the reality that the chains are broken and I'm a free person because of God's goodness and grace and mercy. Amen? Amen. So this table, to put it another way, is not a proclamation of how great you are, because you're not. It's a proclamation of how good God is and how faithful he is. And when you come to this table, all you have to do is come in acknowledgement that you need a savior. Amen. 